You are listening to a Core Awareness Seminar by Liz Cook. Her website is www.coreawareness.com. That's C-O-R-E awareness.com. Please note that Core Awareness is a trademark signature of Liz Cook, her workshops, seminars, books, and CDs. The information presented in the seminar is in no way intended as a substitute for receiving professional medical care. The design and purpose of the seminar is to provide information and to simply educate. The author and publisher shall have neither liability nor responsibility to any person or entity with respect to any loss, damage, or injury caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly by the information, suggestions, explorations, or exercises contained within the seminar or written in response to the seminar. The author is not a medical authority, and she is not qualified to diagnose or prescribe any therapy. The information is simply her personal opinion. Please seek medical care for whatever condition you may have. Hi, I want to welcome everyone to Core Awareness Teleseminar. My name is Liz Cook, and today's interview is with Sam Burney. Sam is a doctor who's focused on eyes, and he's a behavior optometrist. He's an authorized continuum teacher, which makes an amazing combination, and a certified uh, medicinal aromatherapist and a certified cranial uh, sacral therapist. So he's combined a lot of interesting area. He's internationally known author, researcher. He's a faculty member at Esalen Institute. And Sam has written uh, four books, produced a DVD. So he's uh, well-placed. You can find him online and on Facebook. And um, I'm thrilled that, Sam, you've joined me for this conversation about the SOAS and the eyes. So welcome. Thank, thank you, Liz. It's really great to be here. So I'd like to begin by having you uh, tell us uh, in a nutshell kind of how you see this connection of core uh, and eyes. Well, let's start with with this idea that <clears throat> The eyes and perhaps the psoas, and you're the expert on the psoas, have originations in embryonic tissue. And in terms of the eyes, a lot of uh, imprints that occur in gestation, birth, and bonding and attachment uh, are imprinted on our sensory system, our visual system, especially if we've had any impediments along those experiences, it creates a, uh, a problem in terms of how we see the world, what our perceptions are. And, you know, one of the things that, that Emily Conrad used to say is that the eyes are one of the most unrealized tissues of the body. And, you know, I knew that when I first started into this 30 years ago. And I also think the other piece, and I'd like to hear from you about it, is the midline 
connection because I work a lot with the visual midline versus the body midline, and um, you know, so those two points that the the embryonic connection and the midline connection are what I see are you know initial coupling between the eyes and the psoas. Thank you. I want to welcome everybody. Um, as you join me, I, people are coming on right now, and um, so I want to thank you all for doing that and joining us. Uh, this is Liz Cook and Sam Verde. We're talking about the eye-psoas connection, not something I've ever heard discussed before. Um, my perspective on, on core with the psoas is that as soon as I work with the eyes, um, in any kind of softening, any kind of peripheral vision, um, I get immediate response throughout the whole nervous system. So it tells me um, that the autonomic nervous system, which is where we have both our fight, flight, freeze response, which the psoas is intimately involved with, as well as the um, the ability to nourish, to rest, digest, and repair in parasympathetic and all the way to having a full body orgasm is associated with the psoas. And so the eyes to me are it's kind of a no-brainer, so to speak, that they're so deeply and profoundly connected. Well, you so know, I so work with it through the core first, ahead. but I want to hear how you work with it through the eyes. <clears throat> but go ahead. You were gonna say. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that, you know, most of us are habituated to be over-focalized. And so when we do that, we tunnel. And our ambient vision, our peripheral vision, uh, basically we, be, we become very tunneled and narrow. And so we become over-sympathetically driven in our visual system. And, you know, basically, you know, the eyes, whatever's going on in the eyes, in my, in my view, is an adaptive response that, uh, you know, we're trying to deal with some kind of stress, toxicity, trauma. And because the eyes are so involved in our, you know, processing of information, our social engagement, uh, and so on, that this habituation that we learn very early on, especially in school, that we become so over-focalized that that creates such a tension pattern and the sympathetic, parasympathetic starts to go awry. You know, the eye is made of uh, approximately 137 million photoreceptors. It's the organ of light. And when somebody is hypersensitive to light, as an example, that's a signal that there's too much sympathetic and not enough parasympathetic response. The eyes are also interrelated inter, uh, to our adrenal response. If our pupils are dilated more than normal, uh, we're going to be more in a sympathetic uh, type of situation. And we carry a lot of tension in our eyes that we're not even aware of. We're gripping, we're searching, we're seeking. One of the techniques that I like to, pre to play with is to invite life to look at us. And as soon as that happens, our uh, parasympathetic nervous system begins to, to work more. And um, what, whatever the tissue is in the body, we just kind of drop. And so the eyes are my way of monitoring the autonomic nervous system, the endocrine system, the chakras. And whenever there's a problem in the eye, whether it's cataracts, glaucoma, macular degeneration, 
our eyes keep getting worse every year. They're hidden messages. Those are symptoms that there's some systemic and energetic imbalance. So by offering a much more uh, relaxed, ambient experience with the visual system, and I have many techniques to do that, then we begin to you know, find our balance in terms of how we see and how we move and how we feel and how we relate to ourselves and others. I'd like to take this to the... Um to the connection of the I dominance you started out with. Because my, my feeling is that by placing a child in a container away from us and looking at them, we create some of that I dominance, not only through media and all of that, but actually through our inner relationship at a very early age. So that rather than be proprioceptive, which of course is part of what course the psoas is always messaging. So I see the psoas as a, as a messenger of the midline. And one of its major messages is the nervous system, is, is the resiliency and coherency of the, of the nervous system. And the other piece to it is this um, proprioceptive information that's helping us create coherency. And if a, if a person learns very young or becomes very eye-dominant to to get information that should actually be sense felt, then it seems like they're overusing the eyes. And I'd like your opinion and your feedback on what you think about all that. Well, I think uh, what ends up happening, both proprioceptively and also I'll bring in vestibularly, that uh, those, those systems tend to shut down. And so part of my work is to initiate more vestibular proprioceptive um, you know, uh, awareness so that the visual, the dominancy isn't so much uh, because, you know, and this is, this is happening now, what's coming back into my professional life is the autistic community and the whole spectrum of autism to ADD and most, if not all of those kids um, are very confused about the relationship of the eye dominance, the visual proprioceptive vestibular connection. And that's where I think the SOAS uh, piece would be really amazing for me to bring that in because uh, these kids are totally lost in space in terms of orientation and where they are. They, their cues and signals are very confusing and it's why we see these strange behaviors because they're saying, you know, I'm just not in my body. I, I don't know where I am and I don't know where my mom is and where's my umbilical cord and, you know, all that kind of Right, they can't locate. Mm-hmm. They can't locate. So yeah. then we locate from our history or something like that, and it creates a real terror in in a lot of these kids. And then they're they're misdiagnosed and mistreated uh, with pharmaceuticals, and you know that that puts them further away from where we want to go. Yeah, yeah. So um, in the old theory of the uh, uh, autonomic nervous system. And you'd look at, you know, somebody uh, like an anatomy book and you look at it, it, it lines up along the midline and it goes to the eyes. Um, in the newer understanding of the autonomic nervous system, we're looking at connective tissue. So um, I'm curious the connection you see between how the eyes and the connective tissue, kind of what I would maybe head into the fluid system, 
why is that so important to people? Explain that to people, why you feel that's okay. such a big part of it. Well, again, part of our cultural you know, uh, indoctrination is that we, we, we become way too structured in our eyes and our visual system, and that creates in the connective tissue a compression, a paralysis, a disconnect in the nourishment that that connective tissue in the eye, whether it's the retina, the vitreous, the optic nerve, the lens of the eye, the cornea, and we could go through all the different diseases that people are, are uh, you know, getting diagnosed with. And what it comes down to is a lack of nourishment in the connective tissue that starts in the eye and the visual system, and it creates a starvation, basically. And when I started to study craniosacral therapy as an example, people would come in for an eye exam and I'd measure their eyesight and then I would do an hour of craniosacral therapy on them and unwind that connective tissue and then I would prescribe a lens and that was a truer lens because now their connective tissue was fluid. There was more opening and nourishment in that because most eye doctors prescribe lenses that are way too strong and it actually feeds into a, a compression of that connective tissue, it creates a starvation and then you're just opening yourself up to toxicities that accumulate in that tissue, cataracts, macular degeneration, all these different eye conditions that we're seeing out there. So, you know, and I also think through the, the continuum process, uh, that's another place where we just get more enlivened in that connective tissue, which creates the responsiveness and uh, the, the flow that, that is inherent in our biointelligence. The, um, in the connective tissue world, uh, one of the things that uh, we're now kind of talking about is the deepest core, which for those of you kind of hearing this, maybe you already know, um, is called the sympathetic uh, neurocore. And we, we named it that because it embraces the midline or spinal cord and the uh, kidneys and the psoas. And I don't know the connection to the eyes with that, but embryologically, when the kidneys develop, they're the entire length of the midline. And I'm wondering how the eyes and the kidneys interface. Mm -hmm. do you, what mm -hmm. do you know about yeah. that? Well, I, I would, speak, yeah, I would speak, speak at it from a couple of different places. Um, I have a technique, it's called a GDB camera, which actually can measure, it's a scientific instrument that actually measures the energy fields, the chakras, and all the major glands and organs of the body. And it was invented by Konstantin Korotkov. It's on my website. It's called Electrophotonic Imaging. I did a lot of research when I first got the camera in 2009, looking specifically at the liver and the kidneys. And, mm -hmm. and since you asked the question about the kidneys, nearsightedness or myopia, people have shared with me, is an emotional, there's, a, there's the emotional response to that is fear. And in terms of the kidney chi stagnation, there's that fear element and which goes into that survival response, pulling the world in, tightening up. It's becoming a shell of yourself. I also think there's a relationship of the kidney-lung meridian in terms of lymph health, especially with glaucoma. And so those two areas have been things that I've been pursuing in my own research 
between the kidney and the eyes. And let me just say one more thing about the midline. I've done a lot of work with people with traumatic brain injury, and the eyes are profoundly affected where the visual midline actually gets displaced from the body midline. And in the workshop mm -hmm. that, that we're going to be doing, uh, there are specially designed prisms prism glasses that I have created that actually make people aware of the displaced visual midline comparing it to the body midline. It's quite profound what it brings up for people for them to become aware of the mismatches in the midlines that go on with the body. Wow, that's amazing. I'm excited to attend this workshop. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Me too. We're yeah. going to have a fun time. Yeah. 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 For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, I did send the call-in update. Uh, Sam and I are going to teach at Ojo Caliente, which is a fabulous place to go for healing in and of itself. And we're going to do a four-day uh, combination of working with these ideas. And Sam will be available for privates while were there as well in addition to the workshop so come and get it um, so where do we go from here I want to talk about liver because you know the psoas uh, the upper psoas is emerges out of the midline right at the solar plexus and so I think of it a lot about self-actualization and when you were talking about fear and how that limits a person's ability to express themselves um, I see that, to me, liver energy is a lot about creativity and the ability to self-actualize, which then is about how do I see myself in the world. So I kind of, you, you kind of start talking about how people see themselves, and yet we're also talking about the actual physical eyes. Let's talk about that, those two ways you think of eyes. Well, we could we could spend you know the whole hour on the liver and the eyes. Uh, when I when I studied acupuncture, you know I really began to see the relationship between liver chi stagnation and eye stagnation. So these conditions, and I'm just going to talk on a physical level for a minute. Things like floaters, uh, macular degeneration, or just overall toxicities. Um, there's a tracing point from the liver to the eyes and back and forth. In fact, a lot of times, if you kind of open the liver uh, in terms of energetics, it actually will create an immediate change in the eyesight and the visual system. And so, you know, I'm here to say that the, it's almost, the way I think of it is that, you know, the liver and the eyes have their individual, uh, you know, identity, but then there's this global cohesiveness that has to go on and that's kind of how I see the body there's the unity and then there's the local functioning um, if we talk about it emotionally again I've been able to track over the years where if a person has a farsightedness or they're losing their ability to read up close that represents more of an anger emotion that they have shared with me which then traces more to the liver uh, bottom line is the self-actualization that you bring into it really is right on in terms of how we see ourselves, how we see the world. We have to know where we're looking before we can move in that direction. Most people have no idea where they're looking, so their orientation, their GPS system is not accurate. 
And so I get it in terms of what's happening with the liver and the eyes. And I'm really excited about this psoas connection because this is new for me. And I want to play with that piece as well. I think that's another portal that is just fantastic. So that's, that's where I'm going with it. So one of the things that um, the Taoist healers say is the uh, psoas is the muscle of the soul. Um, and the naturopaths in Italy told me that they think of it as the garbage muscle. Very interesting, different perspectives. Um, I think garbage is interpreted uh, a word that in English isn't quite what they're referring to. But what the naturopaths will say is that um, they see the psoas reflecting the toxicity of the enteric brain or the gut brain. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine the you know liver as well. So mm-hmm. so that it becomes uh, irritated, it becomes it can becomes the messenger of of problems because it it is actually very sensitive tissue and is picking up all this other literal you could call garbage. Um, although I recycle and compost, so I, um, I'm not quite sure what they're talking about. But you know, how, so how to work with that? So. So one, just to follow up with the liver piece, so they really see it as part of that communication that there is something not okay in the very core of a person's being, that they're really not thriving. And then the piece with the soul, you know, where that seems very non-physical, and yet to me, uh, the soulful, what you're talking about, you know, we talk about the eyes being also the windows of the soul. So we're really, it's intriguing that the psoas and the eyes, I didn't really put this together, are both parts of the physicality of ourselves that also are very either energetic, emotional, expressive, soulful. Oh, I would agree. I I think that the sensitivity and the versatility potential of those two tissues and the coupling of those uh, could release a lot of the survival, you know, brainstem reptilian response that you refer to, fight, uh, flight, or freeze response. I see a lot of people that are stuck in their eyes around that fight, flight, or freeze response. And if we bring in the polyvagal theory, we can really kind of see the tracing in terms of the speech, language, auditory, visual development. And, um, and now the psoas, uh, I think that this could really expand a person's toolbox in terms of really moving forward in their healing to have these two awarenesses. I think this is a breakthrough uh, and revolutionary, quite honestly. Do you, uh, would you tell people a little, because some people know about the polyvagal system, some people know about the vagus nerve, but it is one of the questions that came up is, what do you see this connection between eyes and the the vagus nerve in particular? Well, the way I the way I see it is that uh, I, there's a, a body of work that I brought into my uh, process that involves releasing and integrating the primitive survival reflex movements, and these are early motor patterns that begin in utero. One of the purposes uh-huh. of these movements is to um, adjust to coming out of the birth canal. But a lot of times these primitive reflexes get frozen 
in uh, the motor, the sensory motor system, the nervous system, and get locked down. And so the cranial work, the fluid awareness continuum, things like that can help bypass the, the reflex uh, frozenness, but sometimes we actually have to go in and repattern it. So I would say that that polyvagal response where we're in the reptilian phase, we get stuck there and we're not even able to move into mammalian or even then the empathic. Uh, the primitive reflexes are very uh, connected to our eye contact and our social engagement. One of the places that it gets stuck is if we don't have a healthy bonding with our mother in terms of breastfeeding and, uh, you know, if we've been taken out of that situation and put in an incubator or the umbilical cord was cut improperly or there was some birth trauma, those reflexes will hang around. And I've even with adults, when I've done workshops, a lot of the folks still have those primitive reflexes. So that's where I would bring in the polyvagal a little bit and how it affects our visual development, our visual system. So I wonder how it affects the psoas. Well, the psoas is messenger of the coherency. So it's, it's, you could say it's part of the GPS system of locating. And, and when we can't locate, there is, a, a, there is a, a sympathetic response because we're not safe. And on a very, very primal level, we instinctively know we'll be eaten. You know, we're, we're vulnerable. So, so the, the response, that's where part of the locking of the eyes to try to locate comes in when we can't locate through our sensory system, where we go, I think, secondary to the eyes um, to, try to, to try to locate. So then when we lock our, our eyes and we go to a conventional allopathic doctor, basically he or she is going to fix that locking He's just going to, you know, validate the programming that we're doing to ourselves. See, we want to blame faulty vision on a deteriorating eyeball. It has very little to do with the eyeball, but it has to do with this survival response that you bring up. And um, so my, my process and my message is, hey, there's another way that you don't have to live out the, the doctor's diagnosis or that that, uh, that programming that we're doing, 10% of seeing is in the eyes, 90% of seeing is behind the eyes. Let's start looking at the 90% and heal that, and then the physical eyes will unlock and boom. The perceptual awareness just is, you know, um, really expanded. Wow. That's, I, that I, yeah, that makes total sense to makes me. Makes sense, yeah. Um, and I, 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 what keeps coming up for me is a, a discussion of the difference between men and women's eyes. And the reason why I want to bring it up is because mm-hmm. along with fight, flight, and freeze, that which, which came out of a lot of research done on the military when it was an all-male military, and when they started to study women and trauma, they had to add the uh, tendon mend. And... Uh, as a mother, I can totally relate to this of that kind of, it's not the same as fight, flight, and freeze. It's a, it's a kind of tending, a ten, you know, whether you want to call it helicopter parenting, um, but, but a kind of tending to where if you can, if you somehow can rescue 
someone else, say your child or whatever, um, then you will somehow, if you can fix them, you'll be okay. And mm-hmm. and I men may have it too, but they've kind of pointed it towards women. And David Verselli, who's a trauma recovery expert, gave a beautiful story once to me that I think answers it. He said, I was in a war zone. There was a there was a nun, and she had gathered the children because that's part of the, the gathering. That's you gather in a tribal way that which you're caring for, the animals, the babies, the children, and the men are going out warding off. But at the same time, he said she was the one who was bleeding, but she was wiping the blood off everyone else. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of unconsciousness of uh, if I can tend to things visually, if I can coordinate everything eyes to um, to hold hold down so I want to know if you see a difference between men and women's eyes and their patterns yeah well I would say definitely their patterns I would say with women you know primarily most of my classes are 80 to 90 percent women and very few men I think that with women there it's much more natural for them to get into their their feeling seeing uh, so their the body connection what am I feeling and then can I look whereas with men uh, they're so stuck in the prefrontal cortex that uh, they just cut their bodies off but there's an interesting uh, thing that I do again I'll, I want to introduce this in our workshop it's something called eye dialogue and what this is is that what I've discovered is the right eye in Chinese medicine is our masculine our father consciousness and the left eye is the mother feminine consciousness and it's interesting when you start using an eye patch and you start dialoguing with each eye and Mm -hmm. what begins to get uncovered about one's own masculine and feminine unresolved father mother issues ancestral and so on and I find that again with with the women uh, they're much more comfortable in terms of that, that tending and nurturing is what you're saying they have a sense of their enteric brain they can go there whereas men the umbilicus is just you know they're they're looking outside of themselves in terms of you know how much am I making this is what I'm doing you know it's it's that that consciousness which is not going to get them anywhere so it'll be an interesting inquiry as as when we do this workshop for people to dialogue into their eyes and see what's what's behind the eyes in terms of the messages right and I I think you know what makes me wonder is children because um, what I'm hearing you say is how we socialize our children have have shifted there's my dog Um, they the socialization of a baby because a, a little infant whether it's male or female is going to have that same sensitivity that same awareness and yet we culturally you know do not permit or encourage against men having that awareness because the enteric brain is there for all of us you know the so is is the same for all of us um, and yet we we lose that and I don't know if you want to say anything about how we see men in our culture, but it seems like that's part of the eyesight of how we eye a man, both how a woman eyes a man, and then 
how a man is accepted into the male bonding well, around the eyes. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, again, a part of it comes down to our our ability to make eye contact and mm-hmm. then our ability to bring our eye awareness into our heart center and then eventually into our sacrum uh, and our pelvic floor. You know, some of my continuum classes, you know, we do a lot of work with the pelvis and what what comes out of that, especially for men, is, is uh, just amazing. Um, and it's part of the, the whole syndrome of the prostate health or lack of health and I do see this connection between that that eye piece and the prostate and Mm. you know again one of my conversations with Emily was about you know what can we do for men to aliven the prostate because what is prostate cancer is just off the charts in terms of what men are suffering and they're just not able to get into that route very easily and I think it goes back to that survival response and the fear of can I be in my heart around my eyes? Can I really see it? Um, so, And can I, mean, I be men, seen for who I am? And can I be seen? Because a lot of times men will say to me, you know what, I, I feel invisible and I'm not, I want to be seen in, in an invisible way. And it goes back to their relationship with their mom and dad and that whole piece and school and so on. So exactly, to, to see and be seen. Well, and, and and just to connect something to that I think is important is the 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 male uh, liver connection because uh, uh, liver is a young energy and and anger and where anger is expressed and isn't just as we work with women who feel like they were raised where being angry was unacceptable, I feel that strength and anger. Men don't quite know how to work with that, so they have to go. We we really like the man who can jaw can you know pulsate in the movie because that shows the inner strength, but he's also angry. And there's a there's an attractiveness that's used in, in that ability to protect. So you go back to those survival responses. And yet I've talked to men who, if I ask them to really touch in on that. They're terrified of it because they don't know how far they could go. They don't know how mm-hmm. far they will go, and they don't know how to control. They don't know if they can control it because they've never had an opportunity to really play with it mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. in a safe environment that isn't either survival, fighting somebody, or um, you know having to back off or walk away. So I feel like men don't get a lot of opportunity, nor do they always take it to find their range of power, which if we're looking at eyes and kidney and liver, that's dynamic, that fear, that, that power, and those eyes. I see a well, you, you know, um, you probably do this in the psoas. I'd like to hear your, your take on this. But one of, one of my uh, intentions with a person's vision is to broaden the spectrum of experience uh, and give them unfamiliar experiences with their visual systems so that they can really tap into, gee, I'm feeling really dizzy and nauseous and disoriented. How can I self-regulate that? And we have many techniques that 
kind of trigger those things because we put so much emphasis on clamping it down in our visual system. I don't want to feel a little dizzy because that must mean I have a tumor or you know, I'm going to be out of control. And part of it in our vision and our perception is to feel that out of control. And when that happens, it just rebalances our nervous system so beautifully. And as we create a community space and a safe container for that, uh, I've seen great strides that both men and women make in having the permission to have a broader spectrum of visual experience instead of that linear, repetitive uh, thing that, that happens. So um, I, I'm so excited to see the response. Uh, and I want to I wanna see this in the, in the SOAS because I know you're doing a similar thing. It just gives people freedom and gives them permission that there's another way. Well, yeah, I, I think of it as that a child's proprioception, it continues to develop. And the way it develops is through exploration and play. So when, when kids are climbing on the chairs and they're hanging off there and they're, you know, rolling and they're doing all these things and we tell them to stop doing that and sit still, we yeah. lock the proprioception down. And, and then we see ourselves aging and we see that as a drying, as Emily would say, don't confuse aging with drying. Um, but they kind of dry out in their core. And so then they become precarious of I can't walk down those stairs so I better buy a house that has no stairs and you know because I might fall and break my hip and you just see this drying out process and the proprioception getting locked down and the minute to me that I you know we use the continuum concepts of of entering a fluid system and allowing these subtle relationships to with uh, gravity to reappear we invite the whole proprioceptive system to open up now it does sometimes cause the, a slight bit of nausea or a disorientation but if you're low to the ground and you're safe in the, the environment then you can simply roll and rest and slow down and handle those disruptions um, and and so one of the things I really encourage people to do when they do movement work is to take their glasses off or take their contacts out. And I can't, I, I'm amazed how many people refuse. I mean, I say it maybe 20 times in a workshop, remove your glasses when you're doing this, remove your glasses when you're doing this, because they're so locked into that safety of the glasses or just familiarity. And I said, there's nothing to see here. We're sensing, you know, but, um, if people do take their glasses off when they're doing any kind of movement work, you're going to get a lot more out of the deal. So here's a conversation for those folks, uh, is for them to explore what their belief system is around blur. Mm. And we're going to be doing this together at our workshop, that blur for most people is a scary idea. If I'm in blur, I'm going to get abused. I'm going to get hurt. I'm going to get mm. the wrong answer. And so then we put so much emphasis into keeping it clear that that creates a starvation and a compression in that connective tissue. So one of the things that we talk about with blur in terms of the possibility of reprogramming is blur is about, respect, uh, is about expansion, letting go, surrendering, being more receptive, being more creative, intuitive, being more fluid. And... So when a person starts to interact with their blur from that perspective, 
there's a release that goes on, and that is so great for their nervous system. Yeah, I mean, it's you you really want to take that opportunity when you're when you're working with Liz to take off the lenses because that is a such a restriction that makes you so unconscious that that could be one of the missing pieces that could really be a major breakthrough. I've seen this so many times. So, you know, and being in this field over 30 years, I can tell you as an expert, that is a really great thing to do, to take off your habitual filtering system while you're, you're doing the movement work that Liz is uh, promoting because that, that'll just take you where you want to go so much faster. So thanks for bringing that up. That is a key point. And I also find that when people do take their glasses up and do this movement work, and I never really made the connection before, um, that what happens for those people is <laughs> I tell them if they've worked with me for a whole week, don't get your uh, prescription changed before you come. Don't get new glasses because invariably at the end of seven days of working with the psoas, their eyesight is different. You know, and in that, uh, one of the things that I counsel people to do is how to either talk to their eye doctor to go back to them and say, can you give me a reduced prescription, 2040 correction, or there are actually ways that you can get lenses online without having to go to a regular eye doctor. So there's a lot of ways that you can start wearing less prescription in certain safe environments and then your eyes will flex into that weaker lens. This used to happen all the time in my cranial work, you know, where a person would have a strong lens and then they would get cranial work from me and they couldn't wear that lens anymore. It just mm -hmm. was a reflection of where they were in the past. You know, I always say that a lens prescription basically is a computer readout of our history, our reaction to life. And mm -hmm. it's not our present way of being. So we've got to be really aware and awake that the filtering system we're looking through matches our consciousness, matches our body. So if they're doing the work, the deep work with you, yeah, the lens prescription is probably not going to be appropriate anymore, uh, and they need to wear something less, actually. So, yeah, for sure, you don't want to get a new prescription before you, you uh, work together. But, yeah, this is, this is an amazing piece that gets lost, and I'm not sure why, but uh, we need to bring it more into, into the somatic community. That's one of my visions, is to bring this into the somatic world, because the eyes are left behind a lot of times. Right. In fact, a lot of work is done with the eyes closed. And I feel it's important to make that bridge. And in fact, to me, when my eyes are closed, I'm, uh, in some ways I have access, but in many ways I don't. And so to me, when I work, I work a lot of times with the eyes very soft but open. Um, I also have had the opportunity of kind of as I go into, I, I do with those, we are going to work with those primitive reflexes in some simple ways that I've come up with to, um, to allow the nervous system to recalibrate and to become mm -hmm. more coherent. And, and when I work in that way, I keep the eyes soft, but I keep them open and I start letting them un, um, they don't focus at all. So it reminds me of what a person looks like who's blind. 
and you look mm -hmm. at them and their eyes are mm -hmm. doing whatever they're doing because they're not mm -hmm. utilizing them in that way. Mm -hmm. I it that's what it feels like or when you look mm -hmm. at a baby sleeping or an animal mm -hmm. sleeping and their eyes loose. My eyes will do that. And people say, "Well, what are you doing?" and I'm saying, "I'm doing nothing. I'm uninhibiting that's my right. control over my own eyes and that's and right. I'm just softening into them and letting them do so I call it drifting. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, where yeah, they yeah, just yeah. begin to let them do whatever they want to do. You know, I think the eyes float in our optic cups, and what you bring up—the randomness and just inviting our eyes to have that that movement, like they're floating in water—is so healing. Because you know, just think about using the computer. It is such a two-dimensional, very visually confining experience the phone, the iPhone, the iPad, the electronics uh, influence. So to give your eyes that uh, freedom, as you're saying, that particular practice, I mean, there, there are some somatic people out there, and I don't know if you've heard the statistic, 60 to 80% of body tension is carried in the eyes. Mm -hmm. um, now, it may not be that high, but it's, it's high. And mm -hmm. everybody that, that I work with, you know, when we start doing that kind of eye movement stuff, at the end of the session, they say, wow, my system is so much more balanced. Mm -hmm. And again, I would say it's probably paralleling what you're doing with SOAS because it's the same, same idea. Um, so I just love the connection. As I think about the SOAS eye connection, I think there's such a, a super highway there that has not been discovered. And that's part of what, what we're doing and coming together uh, and seeing what, what's this about? Mm -hmm. what's, this, what's this connection? Yeah, they seem, I could really feel how they weave really easily together oh, nice. because really so much of my work is about if you can soften the eyes, the psoas lets go because the moment right. you're not in, the moment you don't feel the information is being fight or flight. And we have to remember that when we're using a computer, we're sitting and the eyes are focused and the eyes don't know that you're not in um, freeze mode. That's right. You know, they don't know that you're, you know, it's like, it, so So on that uh, sympathetic information, it's as if you're frozen in time like the deer in the headlights. That's so true. And so one of the things I encourage people to do is to sit on something that has movement. So, like, I mm -hmm. like, really like the swapper because as an mm -hmm. office chair, it has movement. And what it mm -hmm. allows me to do is not go into that dead stare but allows me to keep place, you were saying before, the very beginning, kind of letting the information come into me rather than me go into the information. Mm -hmm. And so I'm using the computer because I'm staying body aware. I'm allowing that. So my eyes are softening, they're changing, they're moving, they're responding because my whole midline is moving and responding. Right. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, that's yeah. great. And then you don't get that 20, you know, two hours later, you go, oh, my God, what happened? I was in the computer for two hours. <laughs> uh, you know, I was in freeze mode a lot in lockdown. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's another technique that I'm going to bring into our workshop together, which is called homeopathic glasses, homeopathic lenses. And basically, these are lenses that have nothing to do with seeing the eye chart. But what they do is when you put them on, they actually spread the light out in a more balanced way onto the retina. But what it does on the somatic level is it completely relaxes your system. And so by changing how the light enters the eyes in a more balanced way, 
it actually can balance the autonomic nervous system and open the fluid body. See, most wow. lens prescriptions are based on the focal, you know, reading of the eye chart, which is a static measurement. But this particular technique has nothing to do with seeing it clearly, but everything to do with spreading the tissue and spreading the light. And people will start feeling in their eyes and their body, I'm dropping down, I'm letting go, I'm relaxing. And I actually have to wrestle them away from people at the end of a workshop because they go, I'm not giving you, I'm not giving these back to you. They make me feel so happy and so, you know, light. So there's a lots of ways, you know, in these portals where you can activate and stimulate and dissolve the habitual filters, the habitual reactions that we get into that are cultural and familial and unconscious. So, yeah, it's, it's exciting stuff to, to be able to find others like you where we're talking the same language, and I would imagine your listeners as well. Well, this is a good segue to um, opening it up to the questions that people have emailed me. We're not going to be opening up to our audience, but we will, we will bring some of these in. And actually, you've covered a lot of their questions, which is great. Um, there are a few that haven't been. So one of them is people, uh, a person wanted to know about chronic dry eyes and what you had to say about that and what maybe they could... How to, how, how to even think or work with that. Well, this is just coming to me right now, but I will say a wet tongue correlates into wet eyes. I would also, I would think that a wet psoas would mm-hmm. also help that. Basically, dry eye is a, is a signal that the sympathetic nervous system is overworking and you're not getting enough uh, fluidity in your body. There, there's a drying out, so to speak. Um, you know, there's certainly really great um, holistic eye drops that you can use. They're called MSM eye drops that are wonderful. But the dry eye is a symptom of the sympathetic nervous system overworking, and uh, there are lots of ways to kind of recalibrate and rebalance that. Uh, wet psoas, wet tongue, wet eye. Yes. You know, I, I call it the juicy psoas, and I one of, one of the reasons I... I think I, I approach the psoas so differently than others, is everybody wants to release the psoas. Mm-hmm. And it's all about how do I release it, how do I release it, that whether it's trauma work or what, you know, manual manipulation. And I'm saying it, it, one of the things I look at is this coherency in the nervous system. The sympathetic, parasympathetic aren't different. They're one and they're part of a, a continuum. And so... I look at when there's a lot of sympathetic response is that there's not enough nourishment. And you're just reiterating that with this idea that there's not enough fluid, there's not enough juiciness in the system. And when there's not enough parasympathetic, then there's no resiliency in the nervous system. And so I don't approach it to get rid of the trauma. I approach it as how do we nourish the system exactly. so it can flourish, how because how mm-hmm. it, it can resolve its own trauma. It knows how to mm-hmm. do that. Sure. And you're speaking of a wellness paradigm, and that's, that's what I promote as well. Um, so we're, we're in simpatico there. Great. Um, another question that came up is uh, tunnel vision. And I kind of think I know what you're going to say about it, or sh- short-sightedness. Short-sightedness. So we're talking about myopia or nearsightedness, and basically the psycho-emotional piece is fear, being caught in past perceptions. The big thing that a person can do there is start taking your glasses off 
and exploring your emotional response in blur uh, because that's a super fight or flight freeze response. Take a look at when you got your first lenses and that's when that's when the response happened. Yeah. That's that's an easy answer, yeah. But that I was very nearsighted as a child and I completely reversed that condition when I was in my late twenties and I haven't worn lenses in, you know, thirty years. So I, I know what you have to go through to dissolve that, that filtering system and you know, I do it all the time with people. People want to know, someone wants to know if microcurrent therapy is useful for the treatment of macular degeneration. Well, you know, it's interesting with all these instrumentations out there. Um, again, I think that you, you just need to try it on your eyes and see what your responsiveness is. Um, my tendency is to use more biological techniques and plant-based techniques to bring better circulation to the macula. That's an avascular part of the eye, so it relies on indirect vessel, blood vessel nourishment. And the key is better oxygenation and hydration, more mitochondria ATP production, which then uh, pushes the metabolic waste away. I don't use microcurrent, so I, I can't really comment on it. For some it works, for some it doesn't. But I, I like to use more biological technologies like our body. Um, you mentioned about right-left differences. Anything else you want to say? Because they were talking about how different their right-left and they weren't sure how best to correct that. Well, it starts probably with, with dialoguing with each eye and finding out what the consciousness is, and then uh, beginning to introduce both eyes together in certain techniques that, that the eyes are integrating. Of course, same with the brain, same with body movement. Um, anything that brings more bilateral integration to our system is going to help the brain and eyes. To finish this off, Bilateral interweaving, bilateral integration at a body level, brain level, eye level will begin to get the eyes to work together, uh, get right. more integration. Yep. Um, another one has to do with uh, someone who is told they have subcapsular cataracts and yeah. they wanted to know what they needed to do to clear it. In a nutshell. In a nutshell. You know, the really good homeopathic eye drops called Cineraria, uh, Succocineraria, which you can use, which actually dissolve cataracts. There's also another eye drop called DMSO Modified, which you can get from a company called, a pharmacy called College Pharmacy in Colorado if you Google uh, DMSO, cataract reversing eye drops. Basically, a cataract is metabolic waste that accumulates in the lens of the eye, so bringing more oxygenation and hydration. The key phytochemical for a healthy lens is glutathione. So any way you can get that. Asparagus has a high amount of glutathione. Um, but there are lots of techniques. I, I help people reverse early cataracts all the time without surgery. That's great. Um, I, I'm not. I, the next question, I'm kind of not quite sure. They're, they're talking about um, a diagnostic tool that's a 3D exam, and they they mentioned that they noticed while they were having it that uh, their diaphragm started spasming and their left psoas began rotating, and they were actually like turning away from the screen, and they they understood it to be a fight or flight response, but they weren't sure why they were getting such a primal response if there was something that was happening, I think, is the question 
in those well, kind of vision therapy diagnostic type of things where people are... Yes, well, you know, our eyes are a videotape library and they store a lot of experiences that then get buried. You know, I would have her dialogue with each eye and just see if she can explore on a somatic level, okay, what's the sensation? And just, just kind of inquire into the sensation and see if it can release. But it's not uncommon when you get those kind of invasive experiences that it will trigger traumatic uh, events that you had no idea. I mean, this happens all the time in my world because the eyes do carry our scroll of history. Mm-hmm. Like the psoas. And I'm sure it happens when your work where people just have these amazing memories or things that happen. Isn't that true? Well, I actually try not to get cathartic responses mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I feel like a cathartic response is simply a reenactment, yeah. and I'm more interested in resolution. So what, yes. I, what my question is in hearing that is that are there diagnostic uh, evaluations being used these days that, you know, whether it's like Dopplers for babies, um, that we should know about as conscious people going into our eye doctors um, – that we don't want to have because it's actually triggering stuff to the nervous system rather than helping us oh get information. Is that well, too big techno- a question? <laughs> no, no. The, the, the technological uh, piece around those particular doctor's offices is horrifying. Getting shot up with fluorescine into the retina you should not do. Um, a lot of the uh, dilated uh, retinal exams you should not do with the bright lights unless you're having some kind of a symptom. The dilation in itself, uh, where you're dilating the pupil, is just very uh, unkind and, and invasive. And a lot of the, you know, the uh, visual field testing can be very triggering as well. So, yeah, I, I think most of it is, is overdone, hypervigilance. And, you know, the eye doctors, and I'm from the school, we were trained to look through the, the lens, the disease lens. Let's look for the disease. And I think there are many other lenses that you can look for, look through. So I'd be very cautious about any of those kinds of tests unless you really need it. You know, okay, great. It will trigger. It'll trigger stuff. Right. It almost seems like it could cause it. <laughs> it could, you it know, could, could. And it could cause it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're we're our time is almost up, and so um, I want to give you an opportunity to sum up anything you want to tell the audience that. Mm -hmm. are here riveted listening to you. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is this, that I would invite you, strongly invite you, to come to our workshop at Ojo Caliente. Uh, I know there's a lot of interest on this call. Ojo Caliente is a beautiful place, and we are going to put together a wonderful healing uh, process for you and come out and inquire into this. That that would be my message. It will be really amazing. Um, and I want to thank you, Liz, for inviting me on the call and sharing me with your community. I'm deeply oh, grateful. Yeah, I'm deeply grateful to you, Sam. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, everyone, for, for joining us on this call. Um, it will become a podcast eventually. So thank you very much. Thanks, Sam. And thank you. See you in New Mexico. You bet. <laughs> All right. Uh, bye-bye. Bye-bye.